You're listening to the First Baptist Rockdale Sunday Sermons Podcast. First Baptist Rockdale is a church dedicated to making disciples who make disciples. We hope you enjoy this week's message. If you were to look across human history, you will see a, a series of uh, absolute atrocities, um, right? Those are the things that make it in the history books, right? And so when you go back, you know, we can push back. Um, almost 100 years, you know, about 90 years ago, uh, and we can get to the, to the rise of, of Adolf Hitler in Nazi Germany, uh, and we can see the destruction that that wreaked across that part of the world, right? Rapid invasions, imprisonment uh, of peoples, executions of people, concentration camps, right? Then we push back just a little bit further, and we can find um, communist China or communist Russia coming into its, uh, its, its throes, and we see um, leaders like Stalin um, executing dissidents and people who are disagreeing, right? And then we can push back a little bit further or just across the world, and we see it in every corner of the globe. We see absolute power leading to the destruction of regular, everyday people. Uh, it is not an outlier, right? The rise of Hitler and the destruction, uh, his attempted destruction of the Jewish people, which will be echoed as we read through the book of Esther very heavily, um, but the rise of him, he's not an outlier situation, right? That has happened all throughout history, going all the way back to when the book of Esther was written back in the third or fourth century before Christ. Um, this is a long-term problem, how we deal with power. And when we see it on a national scale, it, it, it plays itself out in massive atrocities. But we have that same sort of unchecked power leading to atrocities on a smaller scale. Some of you have worked for owners or CEOs of companies who are absolute tyrants. The way they expect you to work, the way they control your work, the way they look at your work, uh, they, they, they present themselves as uh, the absolute God-ordained chosen leader. And, and any, any questioning of their leadership could lead to discipline. It could lead to your firing. It would definitely lead to an unpleasant outcome. Absolute power, even in a smaller setting, leads to, to poor outcomes. We can look at it inside of the church, right? I'm a part of the church. The pastor is, is appointed as the shepherd of the church. That's the role pastor has a, has a shepherd uh, kind of a, a meaning underneath it. And so our job is to guide and protect the sheep. Uh, that is most of you out here today. Um, but you see that abused in church after church after church, where the pastor has somehow gotten outside of any forms of accountability, and then you have these massive abuses. There's a, a large church in the Chicago area, uh, Willow Creek. Willow Creek was massive, still is massive. Leader Bill Hybels. Uh, Bill Hybels was a man who was running the race well, um, but something happened. When absolute power, unchecked power, comes into play, all of a sudden... Um, he lets his defenses down. He starts taking advantage of his staff, of verbally abusing his staff, and then sexually abusing, assaulting his staff. Right, A man who was doing well in the ministry fell hard and short. Right, We can look at it inside of the homes. You know, In the United States of America, every 15 seconds, a woman is domestically abused. Every 15 seconds in our country, that means over the course of the next 20 minutes or so, um, there's going to be 80 to 100 women who are going to be abused by their husbands, right? And this is just, it, it's a tragedy. But the reason that happens is you have men in a position of authority, which is right, I'm, uh, we'll get into that later, but, but, but in a position of authority, abusing that position of authority in tragic 
consequences happen. Power is a dangerous thing. Be careful anytime you're vested with authority because inside of that becomes risks that are tragic for people around you. We're in the book of Esther. If you have your Bible, open to Esther chapter 1. We're going to read a little bit about unchecked power today. What happens with unchecked power in the story of Esther? You'll remember last week uh, we, we were introduced to some of the main characters in the story of the book of Esther. The first one is the king Ahasuerus. This is King Xerxes if you're back in your Greek uh, time. But Ahasuerus is the king of the Persian Empire. Historically, he was a pretty important guy. He was the third major leader of the Persian Empire. He's about to lead a massive invasion uh, of ancient Greece. It's going to be unsuccessful. Spoiler alert. Not really. We're about 2,000 years later. I think I can spoil the outcome of major military interventions. Uh, but he, he's about to go lead this invasion uh, of Greece, and he has this six-month-long party, which is a party, right? Like, I don't know what the longest party you've been to, but six months would be longer than my longest party. I've never had six months to give to a party, but for 180 days he has a party and there's eating and there's drinking. And what he's doing is he's bringing all of the, the nobles and leaders of all of the tribes and provinces that he is over, 127 different uh, provinces that he's over, and he's trying to get them um, to buy into his plan uh, to go and invade Greece. And so he has them there. It's a major uh, uh, ordeal. And at the end of the 180 days, those people go home. And the people who were in that city, the city of Susa, who had been working for 180 days to keep everyone fed and drunk um, and entertained and clean, the people who had to work tirelessly for six months straight for this massive party, are now rewarded with a seven-day party of their own. Right? The seven-day party is the short party. That's crazy to think of as well. They go to the seven-day party, and this is a party in honor of the people who just gave six months of their lives for this kind of war council that was called by King Xerxes Ahasuerus. And so he has this seven-day party. He's, getting, uh, he's letting people drink. They're having as much drink as they want. And then there's a secondary party for the women. Now, look, ladies, I don't know why y'all weren't invited to the big party. It's probably because you're women, okay? I, it's just what it is, right? We push back uh, into the 3rd century B.C. Uh, you're probably not showing up for the big party except for entertainment. And guess what? If you get called to the big party, you probably don't want to be there, right? Because if you're surrounded by 200, 300, 400, 500, 1,000 drunk men and you're the one woman in the room, you don't want to be there. Which is exactly what King Xerxes decides to do next. Read with me in Esther chapter 1, starting in verse 10, on the seventh day, this is the final day of that party, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, that means drunk, just in case you didn't know what merry with wine means, he commanded Mehuman, Bitztha, Harbona, Bigtha, and, and Abagtha, Zethar, and Carcass, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus, to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown. And in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command, uh, delivered to him, or delivered by the eunuchs. And, and at this, the king became enraged, and his anger burned within him. All right, so Vashti is having her secondary party over in the side, in honor of the women who had served so faithfully for 180 days. The king is absolutely three sheets to the wind, 
drunk. He is merry with wine. He is having the time of his life. And in Persian culture, by the way, this is, this is weird, by the way, they made important decisions when drunk. Right? In no other culture do I know of do you say, you know what, we got a big decision to make, let's get drunk, and then we'll make a clear-headed decision. That's what they would do. They would actually, this is according to a Greek historian Herodotus, they would get together, and if they had a big decision like, what do we do in this situation, they would, they would get absolutely drunk, and they would make a decision when drunk. And then they would wake up the next morning, hung over, but sober, and they would look back at the decision they made with drunk. And if they agreed with the decision they made when drunk, when they were hung over sober, that decision was official. This was the largest decisions they made. They made when they were drunk. King, the king is absolutely drunk. He's having a good time. Feels like life is good. Someone said something. He's like, you know what? I'm going to bring my wife in so all of you men can enjoy how wonderful she looks. Now, we don't know exactly what her entertainment was going to be, exactly what the full purpose of what was going to be. There's a lot of speculation about why Queen Vashti was so eager to not go in. But suffice to say, when these men, these eunuchs, came in and said, hey, the king wants you to come to the guy's party, she thought for about a half second, and she said, no, that's not going to happen. That decision is a bad decision. She might have known um, that the mockery would come, or that the catcalls would come, or that she would be forced to do things that would be uh, absolutely despicable for herself. And she said, I will not do that. Some speculate that when it says, bring Queen Vashti in her crown, basically he's saying, bring Queen, Queen Vashti only wearing her crown. That might be what, what that means there biblically, right? So bring her so I can show her off to these people. By the way, guys, just a side note, man, your wife could be the most beautiful woman on earth. She should be absolutely gorgeous to you. You should have that sense of awe, like, my goodness, my wife is gorgeous. That does not mean you should go and show her off to everyone in the world. That's a dangerous thing to do. It debases her. It makes her feel objectified, be better than that. But the King Jerseys wasn't better than that. Instead, he says, you know what, I'm going to go and I'm just going to bring her in and let everyone enjoy what I possess in myself. And what we learn about leadership here, about, about unchecked power in leadership, is that foolish demands lead to dishonor. Right? He, he thought that he had control of his wife. Right? He thought that he could control her and make her do whatever he wanted because he was the king of the most powerful country in the world. He was the lone superpower on earth at that time. He was the head of it, and he had a wife who was his. And so when he spoke, he thought she should jump, but for some reason she had in her mind this sense of, no, I don't have to do exactly what you say when you say it. And his foolish demand led to his dishonor, right? She refused to come, and so he looked bad. Right? There's a room full of people, however many men were in the city of Susa, and all of a sudden the king's like, bring my wife, and then the eunuchs come in you know, five minutes later, and they're like, uh, she's not coming. She won't come. Right? And you can imagine what the room is like, like, oh, you can't control your wife. Oh, right? All of a sudden, this man who was super powerful looked very inept, looked very powerless, looked very weak, felt very ashamed. And because of that, he felt anger, right? And inside of his anger, he's about to make a stupid decision. By the way, when you're angry, be careful, right? When you, when you feel it, right? you feel it in you, right? You feel the anger coming. 
Right? You feel the rage building up. Be careful. Right? This goes back to what I said earlier with uh, being careful with our speech over the next 30 days. Someone is going to say something stupid that you're going to hear, whether in person or on the Internet. By the way, someone says something stupid on the Internet, that just means someone's talking on the Internet. Right? But someone says something stupid, and you're going to feel the need to fix that problem. You don't have to fix that problem. You don't have to. You can let it go. Right? Because when we speak in anger, when we get our feelings worked into things, oftentimes we make poor decisions. And we're going to continue on now in verse 12. It says, Then the king said to the wise men who knew the times. These are like uh, men who were astrologers, or they read uh, signs and entrails and all sorts of things um, that they would do to, d- to discern what was the right thing to do. Um, for this was the king's procedure toward all who were versed in the law and judgment. The men next to him were Karshina, Shethar, Admetha, Tarshish, Marys, Marsena, and Memukon, the seven princes of Persian media who saw the king's face and sat first in the kingdom. According to the law, what should be done to Queen Vashti because she has not performed the command of King Ahasuerus to have delivered by the eunuchs? And then one of these guys, Mamukin, in verse uh, 16, said in the presence of the king and the officials, not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all the officials and all the people who are in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's behavior will be made known to all women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt, since they will say, King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she didn't come. This very day, the noble women of Persia and Media, who have heard of the queen's behavior, will say the same to all of the king's officials. And there will be contempt and wrath and plenty. If it please the king, let a royal order go out, from him, and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes, so that it cannot be repealed, that Vashti is never again to come before King Ahasuerus, and let her, her, the king give her royal position to another who is better than she is. So when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all the kingdom, for it is vast, all women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. This is the problem when you get mad. When you get mad, you seek counsel. The people you talk to are not always the wisest counselors that you could go to, but they give you counsel that points you in the wrong direction. Right? There was uh, the city of Susa, which was not an insignificant-sized city in, in, in the country of Persia. Uh, there was plenty of men present to witness the king's embarrassing moment. Plenty of men present to witness the embarrassing moment for the king. There were plenty of women who probably heard Queen Vashti say, no, I will not go to the king right now. He's drunk, and I'm not going to partake in whatever he's trying to accomplish. But it was not a worldwide known outrage. It was a limited outrage to one city in one place at one time. But because the king was angry, he sought advice from his closest advisors. These seven men who were listed were the only seven people in all of the kingdom who could walk into the king's chambers without being approved of by the king ahead of time. Typically, you had to have an appointment to meet with the king. This will be important later in the story as well. You have to have an appointment to meet with King Xerxes, but these seven guys could come in at any point because they were closest advisors to the king. And something was going on inside of them, and they feared a worldwide feminist revolt. That was their big fear. Women will begin to think for themselves. They'll begin to 
to, to tell us no to things. And there's going to be this massive revolt against this male structure out there. And we can't have that, king, so you need to issue a law. You need to issue a decree banishing the queen from your presence. She can never come see you again. She didn't want to see you that time. She's never going to see you again. Stripping her of her title and giving her title to someone better than her. Right? That's an interesting concept, too. You'll get a better wife. Right? And so that's the whole concept there. Like, hey, this is going to cause a worldwide chaos. It wouldn't have caused worldwide chaos, by the way. It would have caused localized grumbling and gossiping. That's what, what it would have caused. But King, all right, the king in that moment, because he was so enraged and so worked up, he sought counsel from other people who also were not in the best state of mind, being intoxicated themselves most likely. And they made an emotional decision. And when you make emotional decisions, they are almost always rash. But they're almost always rash decisions. I'm not to say that your emotions can't help guide you along the way, right? I think we're, we have emotions that build us into who we are. But if you are no longer in control of your logical faculties, you are not making a wise, measured decision, right? Inside of your household, right? If you have kids, I have a kid or six, um, right? And there are times when my kids make me emotional in the bad way, right? And I get angered or enraged in that moment. And there are two ways that this goes. One is I respond inside of that anger. And they receive swift punishment that is uh, probably more severe than appropriate for what had happened. Because I am not using my logical, thoughtful, TBRI-trained brain. That's for Doc and Danielle. Probably no one else in the room. Um, right, but I'm not, I'm not using the best part of me in, in, in my disciplining. The second thing that happens is I say, go away. Go. And then I process my emotions. And then I come to what I feel is a fair consequence for the decision that was made. But when you speak out of your anger or your emotions, you make decisions emotional, you will make rash decisions. We have all done it, right? We have all, in a moment, said or done something because we felt something when in retrospect, right, not long after it happened, we're like, oh, if I had just slowed down a half a beat, if I just slowed down a little bit, then I wouldn't have experienced the, all these outcomes that I didn't intend. Because there are unintended consequences from rash decisions. The Bible says that we're supposed to be you know, right, quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. That's what we're supposed to be. But a lot of us, we're quick to listen and quicker to speak. Right? Someone begins to talk and we're already cutting them off because we're emotions get geared up and we cut them off. Emotional decisions lead to poor decision making. It's true in a family. It's true in a company. Your boss screams you down. Your boss is absolutely on your back about something or your your employee frustrates you for the 19th time of failing to do the simple task that you've given them to do and in that moment you're you, you're you're you get angry you get enraged you get frustrated and you want to lash out if you'll take a beat or two whatever it takes for you to regain control of the logic part of your brain the part of your brain that thinks better than the emotional part 
then speak. Slow down. King didn't slow down. He got the people together right away. Hey, I'm ticked off. What do we do? How do we handle this situation? This is what we need to do. We need to write a decree, send it to everywhere we know, tell everybody, Vashti's out. Vashti's out. She didn't come when the king called. She's out. Someone better is coming in. That's what we're going to do. Right? And basically what he's doing in that moment is he's publicizing his most significant, embarrassing fact. Right? This would be, uh, I have, uh, I guess it was a former student of mine years and years ago on Facebook was fighting with her husband on Facebook. They were in the same house. Like in the same house, publicly fighting each other on Facebook. Putting out their business in a public setting where everybody who happened to be like accidentally exposed to it could see it all right there. Right? Because they thought, whatever in their brain thought, let's take this to Facebook, that was not the logic part of their brain. I've read a lot of books on marriage, a lot of books on how to deal with conflict. None of them say, take your conflict public so all your friends can side up immediately. But that's what was happening. The, the, the wife was complaining, and her friends were siding up about how the husband was a dog, and the, do the husband, the dog of the husband, would respond back, and they would all bail on him over him and he might have been wrong I don't know it was dumb it's a fight that should have happened inside of the house it's an argument that should have happened inside of the house but they took it public and that's exactly what King Xerxes does he takes this thing that's in one city in one corner of the empire and he says I'm going to send word everywhere that my wife doesn't come when called right the most embarrassing thing that he's probably experienced up to that point and he sends it out as a memo to be read in every single town because he made a rash decision, because he was emotional. Be careful about your emotions, right? God gave you emotions. They're not bad, right? Uh, emotions, uh, what is my, my, my sister-in-law, I'm going to misquote her here, right? But, but emotions, she, she says emotions are real and they can't be wrong or something along the lines of that. Emotions can be wrong. They are real. They need to be acknowledged. You need to deal with them, right? But don't live and speak out of them. Live and speak out of truth. So take a moment, process, and go on. If the king had done that, the story would be different, but God was providentially using this to push his agenda forward. This is the beauty of, king, uh, of the story of Esther. God uses this crazy, nonsense, bad advice to, to, to bring about the ultimate salvation for the Jewish people. Right? He does this because God is working 3D chess while we're playing chutes and ladders. I mean, it is crazy how God organizes everything to work out. Verse 21, it says, this advice, this bad advice, by the way, from Memucon, this advice pleased the king, of course it did, and the princess. And the king did as Memucon proposed. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province in its own script, and to every people in its own language, that every man be master in his own household, and speak according to the language of his people. He's going to be master in his own household, and he's going to speak according to the language of his own household. The language of his own household is kind of an interesting concept. The idea, though, is like if I was to marry uh, a Mexican, uh, a Mexican, all right, there, that'll work out fine, right? They speak Spanish, I speak English, right? Inside of those homes back in ancient Persia, um, sometimes the dominant language that was chosen was the uh, Hispanic language. That would be the, 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 the woman's language because she was at home with kids doing all that stuff. 
And so the kids grew up speaking more fluently the language of their mother and not their father. And the king is like, I've had enough of that. Men are rulers in everything. You're going to rule your household with an iron fish. You're going to be in charge of your household with an iron fish. And even the language spoken is going to be your language. Don't allow any more of that foreign tongue to be coming out of your kids' mouths. You choose the language. You're the man after all. And this idea of like what I would consider to be abusive patriarchy, right? this idea that men have ultimate power and sovereign control was codified because his wife had embarrassed him when he made a poor request in a drunken state, and now the entire globe has been infected by his stupid decision-making. Right? The idea that one bad decision on his part to request his wife to come and embarrass herself in front of all of his drunk friends has led to him issuing a worldwide edict, a known worldwide edict, saying men must be the master of their household. It was a self-inflicted wound. He could have cut the bleeding off at any time, but he just kept going. And oftentimes, self-inflicted wounds are the worst kind of wounds. I'm one of these people who makes self-inflicted wounds. Uh, I, I, can, I can begin a process, and then I just keep going, right? And people are like, Matt, just put the shovel down. I'm like, I don't know how. I think if I keep digging, I'll get somewhere I want to be. And the answer is no, never. Right? It just keeps going further and further down, right? Because I, I think that if I keep talking, if I keep reasoning, if I keep arguing, somehow at the end of it, my wife or the person I'm arguing with is going to be like, you're right. I, wasn't, I was not convinced until you insulted me for the 19th time. But now, after that, I'm convinced you're right. right? Well, guys, self-inflicted wounds are the worst kinds of wounds. They're totally avoidable. Totally avoidable, but we, we still plunge headlong into them. This self-inflicted wound caused some weird outcomes. But I want to deal with the idea uh, of this men master of the household Concept That concept, by the way, which is a bad Persian concept, was endorsed as a bad Christian concept. Right? For some reason, we grab Persian law that men are to be the domineering masters of their household, and we have baptized that and turned it into the way that the Christian home should look. Which if you read, I don't know, the book of Ephesians, right, chapter 5, you get roles of men and women, right? And it says women and their women, you know, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, right? You have a, you have a command in there, wives, submit to your husbands. It's in there. It's, it's true. It's biblical. And men love it. Hey, wives, submit to your husbands. Seriously, it says it right there in black and white. But we don't read the rest of the story because it turns its eyes right back to men. And it says that husbands, give yourselves up for your wives as Christ did for the church, right? right? The idea is if I live self-sacrificially for my wife, and this has been true, I've been married for 19 years, when I am self-sacrificially living for my wife and for my family, my wife has no problem submitting to my leadership. None. It's whenever I begin to become uh, domineering, when I begin to become arrogant, when I begin to become selfish, that all of a sudden it becomes a fight because my wife looks at me and says that is not Christ in the church now she has a responsibility still to be underneath my direction but not underneath my thumb that the stat I gave you earlier says every 15 seconds a woman is a victim of domestic violence in America is a shameful stat and a lot of it is brought from a poor understanding of what the Bible teaches about a relationship between a husband and a wife husbands you are not the dictators in your home if you think 
you're the dictators in your home, I want you to open a history book and read about dictators and tell me, do you want to be those people? Is, is it those people you want to be? Do you want to be Pol Pot? Is that who you want to be? Right? Do you want to be Ayatollah Khomeini? Is that the sort of person you want to be? Do you look up to Stalin or Hitler? Right? Are these the people that you look at and say, man, that's a good guy. Is Noriega your hero? If the answer to all those questions is no, stop claiming dictatorial control over your spouse. Right? That's not your role. Right? You are the spiritual leader. You are intended to lead your family in a loving, gentle, generous way. Your model is Christ leading the church. Because Christ is the right authority. And when we put our eyes on the right authority, the one who gave his life so that mankind could have eternal life, the one who lived his life among us, giving of himself selflessly, right? if that's your model, man, you will have a happy, blessed marriage. Your wife will be easier to, to follow her part of Ephesians 5 when you follow your part of Ephesians 5. I tell people often that, that you have 100% responsibility for what your job is in your marriage. Right? You have responsibility to do your part. You can't make your spouse do their part. But you can make it easier for them. Stop. Stop thinking that you have to be this thumb on their head. You must do what I say. When I call, you come. When I say, do this, you do this, you should not have that power over that autonomous person. God created your wife in his image, sacred, special, precious. She is important and valuable to, 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 to Jesus Christ, as important as you are. You have no special claim to the love of Christ. Treat her with the same love that Jesus Christ has treated you. Be Christ-like in your marriage it gives no room for abuse it gives no room for violence it gives no room for any of that it's sad that people have used the bible as a, as a cudgel to women you must submit to me you must do what i say you must listen to what i say because the bible says you have to do it but we don't like the next part because the bible says anyone who holds the bible up and uses a weapon like that is probably living anti-gospel right you've given up if I have to point to one part of the Bible and say, do this while I physically, verbally, emotionally, spiritually abuse you, I'm not, I'm not looking like Jesus Christ. If you're a woman in here today and you're suffering at the, from abuse from your husband, I, I just want you to know that is not okay. That is not what God has intended for you. There is something better. Seek help. I can be a safe place for you to start that process. But seek help. It is not okay. If you're a man and you can recognize in your life there's been times when you're more like the Persian Empire version of how marriage should be, repent today. Turn back to your wife and say, babe, I'm sorry. I see in my life there are times when I want to be controlling, domineering. I can't allow you to breathe because I'm so worried about losing some semblance of control. Repent publicly to your bride. Say, I've messed up it's okay if she's still with you she's been forgiving you for a while she'll probably be glad to hear it that you recognize you have some shortcomings at well guys you need to know this story right here talks about unchecked power and unchecked power leads to corruption right unchecked power leads to poor decision making and corruption in the world that we live in so how do we avoid 
living with unchecked power, we check our power underneath the authority of Jesus Christ. As believers, it's so, it always comes back to Jesus, right? Check your authority under the authority of Jesus Christ. I talked about myself being the shepherd of this church, and I will almost never refer to myself as the shepherd of this church, because the true shepherd of this church is Jesus Christ. He is the good shepherd, right? I am an under-shepherd, that is the term I prefer, by the way, of this church. I have authority only in as much as Christ has vested it down to me, and only in as far as I am following the authority of Christ. When I try to lead this church away from the authority of Jesus Christ, I have surrendered my authority, because my authority only comes from Jesus Christ. In your house, Husbands, as you're called to lead, direct, guide your family, that is a biblical call for you, right? You have been vested that authority by Jesus Christ, and as you lead like Christ led the church, and as you love like Christ loved the church, you are in a proper authority place. That checks your authority, but when you wander outside of that, and instead of being selfless like Jesus Christ, it becomes selfish love and requiring and demanding. You have surrendered your God-given authority because you have wandered away from the one who empowers that authority. It's true of every relationship where there are power dynamics at play. Every relationship where there are power dynamics at play. Be under the authority of Jesus Christ because unchecked power leads to corruption, but authority underneath Jesus Christ leads to an ordered society. 